One thing I forgot to include, um, there, if you're in college, right after this service, there's a free pizza downstairs, okay? That's a deal, right? Okay. So if you're a college student and, and you want to be part of that, Rick Bruce has uh, got pizza coming in, and um, there are college students in the 9 o'clock that are coming back for this, and others are going downstairs. So right after this service, and um, I'm kind of teaching a little bit shorter today. I uh, just want to allow time for people, if you have questions afterwards, to come up and visit and, and talk about the subject matter that we're looking at. Um, especially on the heels of what we talked about last week. You just made a great statement in that last song when you said, no scheme of man, no power of hell can ever snatch me from his hand, right? That is a great, great truth. And I, I need to amplify that this morning, especially because of what we talked about last week that apparently caused a fair amount of confusion because I think in this last week I received more emails and had more conversations than I've had maybe in the last year or two years um, after teaching on a particular subject. Last week, if you weren't here, we spent a fair amount of time talking about judgment and what judgment looks like and how deeds and actions that we do on this planet play a role in that. And, and if you want to know more about that, you have to go back and look at last week, but it, it kind of stimulated and triggered questions that individuals have. I, I never want anyone to leave confused, so let me amplify something that I didn't say last week, just because of the way in which we are approaching it. There are two judgments in the Bible, okay? The believer's judgment is called the Bema Seat, in which believers stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. But the big judgment is called the white throne judgment. And that's what we talked about last week when we opened up Revelation chapter 20 and we began talking about the white throne. So here's what the white throne is. The white throne is when everybody, all of humanity, appears before God. And he will put unbelievers on his left and believers on his right. And to the right, he says, Enter into the kingdom that I've prepared for you and to the unbelievers, he says, depart from me. I never knew you, okay? That's the white throne. But the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ is where Jesus gives out rewards to believers based on the things that we did to advance the kingdom. It's clear that there are rewards in Scripture. So I just want to be very clear that there's, there's two judgments. And here's why I approached it last week the way that I did. Last week, there were about 600 and some people here at the church, and obviously you can understand with that many people, there's varying understanding of the Bible. Some people are brand new to church and receive notes on a pretty regular basis that usually sounds like this. I'm brand new to church. I've not done this before. I don't know how to understand these things. Will you help me work through it? And so in the last couple of weeks, you know, I've seen individuals that are brand new to the United States, one from China here two weeks ago that had never been in an American church in his life, had never been in a church. And last week, a young man who's from Saudi Arabia had never been in a church in his life. So we have people with varying degrees of understanding, and we have to help them understand this material. So I don't want to leave anybody confused. Hopefully, where we're going today will really clear things up for you, especially if you had questions hanging over from last weekend. Here's my challenge for you. My challenge is that we would see Jesus in such a way this morning that would render us insensible. Have you ever looked at the noonday sun? Maybe when you were a child, your mom said, don't look into the sun, it'll burn your eyes out. And you did it anyways, right? 
and you, and you stare at it so long that you feel like maybe you did damage and then you start looking around, you try and see your brother and you can't see him. I did this, right? And, and I, I couldn't see anything else because what I looked at, I looked at so long that I felt like I lost my eyesight. I want to look at Jesus in such a way that it renders us insensible as though we're looking at the brilliance of the sun and we're blind to everything else that's around us based on the things that Paul is showing us this morning. Let me invite you to go to Romans 2. And we get a, a description that starts out, a description of God. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 is where we left off at last week. Look with me on the screen or open your Bible up there. It says in verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Now we just touched on this a little bit last week. I, I didn't give a lot of definition to it, but this word partiality is the one Greek word that's in your notes this morning. And it's the only one you're going to see on the screen. And it's this really big word, prosopolempsia. And it sounds like a disease, doesn't it? It's like, I want to catch that. It's this word partiality. And the remarkable thing about this particular word is you won't find it anywhere in ancient literature before Christianity. Apparently, the Christian writers of the Bible coined a phrase by taking two words and putting it together. The two words were to receive face. It was a common understanding that when someone went in to see a king, they had to bow in the king's presence, even walking down the aisle with their head bowed to the ground. And when they got to the throne, they literally had to go to the ground and put their face to the ground, not looking the king in the eye. When the king would receive a face, he would place his hand underneath the chin of the individual and lift his face up so that they could look each other eye to eye. That's prosopolemsia, to receive a face. It means to give consideration of someone because of who they are. Now, we have an image of this that's the exact opposite in our world today. The exact opposite is what we think of in an American courtroom when we think of the image that's usually emblazoned on a judge's bench of lady justice or what you might think of as the scales of justice. In the image of the scales of justice, it's a woman and she's holding out a balancing scale in front of her, but she has a blindfold wrapped around her head so that she will be completely impartial to whomever is standing before her. That's the scales of justice because an earthly judge can't see with impartiality and therefore needs to be blindfolded. But we're told according to God's word, God sees everything and yet he's still impartial. Well, Paul's setting the tone for these five verses because in the ancient world, much unlike where we live in the United States today, very few people believed that justice would be done in a court of law. Very few people expected they'd get fair treatment. In fact, the exact opposite was expected. Why would anyone expect to go before a monarch or a judge in the ancient world and think that that judge is going to treat somebody who's very wealthy and very influential the exact same way they would treat a poor pauper on the street? No one expected fair treatment. Even though God had given instructions, that is the way people are to be treated because he's an impartial God. Look with me on the screen at an example of that from Leviticus 19. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. It's this kind of even-handed justice that Paul says is an attribute of our God. 
This is the way he looks. And so one of the blinding things we should know about him that causes us to be insensible to everything else around us, even though we're used to favoritism, God says, I show no favoritism whatsoever because of my perfect knowledge, because of my perfect insight. It's not impossible for me to be impartial. That's exactly the way I am. So number one, God shows no favoritism. Now, that's contrary to the way our minds think because my experience is this. When I've met individuals throughout the course of my life, and I, I guess yours is probably the same, I've met individuals who contemplate the God of the Bible. They generally arrive at one of three major conclusions. I know there's others, but three major ones typically. Some individuals, and I believe many of you are in this category, some individuals, when they contemplate the God of the Bible, they say, that God is awesome. That God is worthy of all the glory. He's worthy of all the honor. But a second category sounds more like this. Some people read about the God of the Bible and they say, that God is just love, 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 love. And he's like a grandpa teddy bear. I'm all over that. And then there's a third category. And the third category says this. God is a tyrant. I read the God of the Bible and he's not loving whatsoever. He wants to drop the hammer. He just can't wait to pound people into the ground because of life experiences or because they've heard stories or because they've read parts of the Old Testament and, and they see things that take place in the Old Testament and can't make sense of it. And so an argument usually gets launched that sounds like this. Why, when I read the Old Testament, do I see that he tells Israel to completely destroy other nations? Why do I see him tell men, women, and children to be wiped out? And then when you come to King David, it looks like he says, well, even though David committed murder, even though David committed adultery, which are both capital offenses, he doesn't give him any punishment. He gives him a pass. In, in those statements, individuals who are thinking that way completely miss the biggest issue of all. The biggest issue is this. All sin is a capital offense. We are all worthy of death. It's a wonder that anyone gets to live. God could drop the hammer at any time. But God is profoundly patient because he is not willing that any would perish. Right, church? He's not. So he's profoundly patient. That he chooses not to drop the hammer is not a strike against his character. It merely evidences a capacity to deal with sin in the way that he chooses. So Paul makes this huge statement in verse 11. There is no partiality. Just bear down on that. Have you ever known anything in your life that is impartial? God says, that's me. There's no partiality with me. He's making a character statement. The standard of impartiality, however, has a problem. When you consider two people groups, two distinct people groups in the Bible, because God hasn't dealt in a similar method with two groups whom you find in his own word, to the Jews, he gave a revelation of himself. He gave a visible image. He handed the law on Mount Sinai down to Moses and said, you are a people who are set apart for my purposes. I will reveal myself to you. That's a revelation that he denied to the Gentiles. So people would approach that and say, wait, that doesn't look like an impartial God. What Paul's about to show us in these next couple verses we're going to look at is that God does have a law that also applies to the second group known as the Gentiles. 
And and I want to explain that to you as we move forward. So let's go into verse 12. Verse 12 says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I, I gave you a little bit of a cheat sheet up on the screen because these are the two people groups, right? So let's look at this. For all who have sinned without the law, who is that church? Gentiles, okay, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, that, that's the Jews, okay? So Paul's got two specific groups he's trying to bring together, this, this ethnos. He's linking these two ethnic groups here. In case you didn't know it, if you weren't born Jewish, you're Gentile, all right? Okay, it's, it's not a derogatory term in the Bible. It's just a term that God used to describe anybody who was non-Jew, so maybe you've never thought of yourself that way before, but you are a Gentile, okay? It's not an offensive thing. Maybe you need to actually say that out loud. Let's do that on three. One, two, three. I am a Gentile, okay? And yet God says in his word later that for believers to understand there's neither Jew nor Gentile before me. But just so you understand, this, this, this ethnos group, Jews and Gentiles, all who have sinned under without the law, Gentiles, all who have sinned under the law, those are Jews. So let's take on the Jewish portion first. Jews believe God is partial. They believed he's absolutely partial. So to them, they boasted in the law, saying God really, really likes us. I mean, look at how he's treated us. We are his chosen people. We are select from all of the world. We've got his law. He handed it right to us. But Paul clearly states here, it's not the possession of the law that counts. Let me explain it this way. Just because you know the speed limit sign is posted on the side of the road, do you always drive the speed limit? Guys? I'm calling you out, man. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's make it more relevant. Most of you are old enough to remember a time when you could text and drive, right? And then a law was passed. No more texting and driving. Just because you know the law, do you always obey the law? Okay, some of you, some of you aged people, I'm putting myself in that category, you're probably old enough to remember a time when you could drive your car without a seatbelt on, right? Okay, then it became a law, click it or ticket. Just because you know the law, do you always obey the law? See, this is, this is Paul's argument here. How easy is it to know a law and go on your way without it having any effect on you whatsoever? That's his argument about the Jews. This is his argument about all humanity who knows what they're supposed to do but doesn't do it. This helps us understand James. Look what James wrote on verse 22, chapter 1. But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. I totally relate to that verse. I get it. Because every morning I have this habit when I wake up and I walk into the bathroom, the first thing I do is I look in the mirror. And then I'm so discouraged, right? <clears throat> Right, because you know you, you get puffy skin, you swell up during the night for some reason. I don't know why. And based on what you ate the day before, it carries a, a haunting presence the next day. And I'm looking in the mirror, thinking, "What? Who is that dude? 
right? Well, as the day goes on, I start feeling better about myself, and I'm, I'm forgetting, and I'm thinking, I'm like the 22-year-old Mark in my head, right? How many of you are doing that? You're thinking you're so much younger than you are, and, and then you walk by a mirror in the midst of your day, and you're like, what? Who is that? You 20-year-olds, your day's coming, right? It's coming. You may not think it relates to you, but it absolutely does. James 1.22 has nailed it. He said, the Jews are like that. They looked at the law. They're looking right at it, and they know it. But there's no evidence whatsoever. See, the knowledge of the law just makes the guilt that much greater. You know it, but you don't do something with it. Now, that's on the Jewish side. And then he talks about the Gentile side. He says on verse 12, these people who sinned without the law, there's something coming for them too. Here's the contrast for him. He did not give the law to the Gentiles so they wouldn't be judged by the law, but we, if you consider yourself in that category, we do have the law of God stamped on our heart. We're told that. He's written it right on us. It's not that there's no awareness in our society of God. We've already established that in chapter 1. Chapter 1 would very, very clearly, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen so that they're without excuse. It's not that there's no awareness. He's simply saying this, people who have sinned without the law, they're going to be judged by their more limited knowledge. So both groups have sinned the way Paul's launching this, but the basis for their judgment is completely different. This week when I was pondering this and considering this passage, I started to begin thinking about responsibility to do something with the knowledge that we have. And it really struck me that even with the increased technology that we live among today, with the capacity for media to rampantly grow across this world, not just in our nation, not even just in the Western world, but in third world countries where you can see people in remote villages with cell phones. As media has expanded, seemingly exploded, the ability to get God's word out has never been known in such a way as it is today. Yet, I can say this very, very clearly, most People around the world have not ever heard clear biblical teaching, much less grasp its saving truth. However, they're still responsible, God says, because of the clear revelation in nature and because of his witness in our hearts, our conscience. He stamps it on us. We're all accountable. So I would say this. Today, our society is even more accountable, even greater knowledge of God is available to us to the degree that I think we're even more responsible than the ancient Jews who stood on Mount Sinai who had God's word handed right down to them. That God would show himself in thunder and lightning and power, that's, that's a responsibility. But to have the complete word of God right in front of us, to have a complete set of scriptures in our own language, to be able to know this God intimately, makes us even more responsible. We're like the city of Capernaum. If you remember the story, Jesus is in the city of Capernaum. It's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in this region is where he's done some of the mightiest miracles ever heard of. He's fed thousands of people out of a couple loaves of bread. He's walked on water. He's calmed a sea and told it to be silent. They actually saw people from the city of Capernaum who had been healed from physical deformity. 
And Jesus walks among them, and they reject him. They have God's written word, and they have the pleasure and the privilege of meeting Jesus. Can you imagine? And they still reject him. So Jesus rips into them. You read about it yourself in the New Testament, but he literally says this, Woe to you, Capernaum, for if the things that had been done in you had been done in the city of Sodom, Sodom would have remained unto this day. I tell you the truth, it will be more tolerable for the city of Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for you, Capernaum. That's, that's some heavy weight. What's Jesus saying to them? You had greater knowledge. You had the knowledge of me, the Son of God, and you rejected it, so he tears into them. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you have so much information in your head and you reject it. It's what Scripture calls being an apostate. Someone who totally walks in the truth, knows the truth, studies the truth, and then comes to the point where they say, Nah, not interested. I'm going my own way. Let me back that up with Scripture. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 10, 26. For if we, this long passage, so just hang with me. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under foot the foot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Scary stuff, isn't it? It, it should make us quake, saying, I never want to go there. I never want to find myself in that place where I'm just totally disregarding God and ignoring and walking my own way and, and abandoning it and leaving it. Not once I've come to this place where I've got all this knowledge, all this information. So in this verse, we're clearly seeing that all people will be judged, but they will be judged according to the light they have, not according to the light they don't have. Move forward with me as Paul amplifies this in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Paul's not using a normal term here for um, hearing you and I may enter into a conversation. I, I could sit down on these steps and begin talking to Ted and Lynn right here, and we just would hear each other in the midst of a conversation, gentle listening as friends talk together. That's not the word Paul's using here. That word would be akuros, but he's using this word akrotes, and akrotes has a bigger implication. It's used of people whose business it is to listen. Immediately, you might be thinking, what? Who's, who would have the business of listening? Well, let's put it in context. Here's a big idea. Think of a college student. College student who decides to sign up for a certain course while they're in school. Principal responsibility of that college student after they've exchanged money for the right to go into that class is to sit before a professor, to take notes, and as a result of taking the notes and signing up for the class, they have a responsibility. They are now accountable to that professor, and there will be a test at the end, and hopefully there will be a reward of a very high grade if it's a diligent student. 
That, that's someone who's listening. It's their business to listen, contrasted to someone who might audit a college class. I audited college class. Maybe some of you did too. You can audit certain classes, which means you simply show up for the class. You don't have to take notes. You don't even have to pay attention to the professor if you don't want to because you don't get a grade at the end. You're not accountable. These individuals, Paul is saying, these hearers of the law, they're not the ones whom God is justifying. Why does he use that phrase, it's not the hearers of the law? Because in the first century, if you showed up at a synagogue, typically you would find someone get up on a platform or stand up before the crowd and begin reading the Word of God and then closing the Word of God, and then they would begin talking about the affairs of men. They would talk about the traditions that the rabbis handed down to them or the celebratory parties that they were going to go to. They did not talk about the Word of God in most cases. That's why you find people so shocked when you see Jesus showing up in the synagogue for the very first time, and he says, hand me the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins reading and teaching, and then we see, Scripture says, the people were shocked because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Well, if you went to the first century synagogue that Paul's writing about, you got a whole bunch of people who are auditing the class. They're coming in, and they're just hearing it and not doing anything with it. They're just paying attention and then getting off onto other things. But he's saying the reality is a person that hears truth more and more and more truth, they are responsible to respond. So the greater the hearing, the greater the judgment. If you don't want to be responsible, stop coming to church, right? Like I'm saying that jokingly, but not really. If you don't want to be responsible, Stop paying attention to this stuff because God says, I expect you to do something with it. This is a big deal. So he's talking about these doers of the law. Let's make sure we really understand that. Doers of the law is somebody who's got knowledge of God's ways. And this is a huge obligation for us because the, see, he says the doers of the law are justified. But immediately we would recoil and say, what? Like the law can't justify me. And obeying the law is impossible. Absolutely, you're, you're right on the money. The law can't give you salvation. And, and the law can, cannot put you in a place where you can fulfill it. You can, it's impossible to keep apart from God. So the law has a distinct purpose, and I'm talking about God's ways, the things that he stamped on our hearts, the things that he said in his word. The law has a distinct purpose. Let me show it to you, Galatians 3.24. The law has become our, what church? Tutor. What does a tutor do? Is it a guide, a teacher, someone that instructs you in the right way so that you will do something with the information. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified. So we're justified by Christ, but the, the law, God's ways, leads us there. So the law has this distinct purpose so that the end result would be that we will be justified. So what is a doer of the law? A true doer of the law is someone who has come to Jesus Christ in faith and literally says, I can't do this on my own. I got sin." I, I need the forgiveness that you give, and I need your strength to work through me. And as a result of coming to him, he comes to us. And literally, we're told the Holy Spirit indwells us. And that new life, that new life gives evidence, and we will be justified according to God's word in the final judgment. 
So the idea here is just so we're real clear on this. The big idea is not that obeying the law will produce justification. It's that we demonstrate that we belong to him and we give evidence in our life that we really are his. Last big passage before we end this, and I'm gonna take you back to Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter seven. Let me show you something that maybe had confused you previously if you've ever read this. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and, and what, and acts upon them. See, there's action involved. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rocks. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall." We're going to go over into verse 14 right now, but Paul's underscoring something at verse 14. He's making a parenthetical statement of how huge this is. Stay with me. Go with me to verse 14. You want to see how crucial it is to actually do what God says? Verse 14, for when the Gentiles do not have the law, who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Some people, when they read that, who don't normally read the Bible, would say, well, there's a reason I don't read the Bible. That's so hard to understand. What is he saying right there? The Gentiles, who do instinctively the things of the law, are a law to themselves. How do we understand that? You and I are governed by law. Our nation has a set of laws. We function within it. But there's a bigger law than that. There's the law that God stamps on our heart. It's already written upon us. The most basic requirements are already known. Here's an example. The ancient writers of the Bible, and I'm talking about the Old Testament writers, had a common understanding. Abraham, who lived way before them, they understood that he did the things of the law even before God handed the law down on Mount Sinai. Well, how could he know to do that? Because God had already stamped it upon his heart. So we, we live in a society that doesn't matter where you go, even across this entire planet, people possess an inner sense of right and wrong. You find it in all cultures. There's a sense of sin. There's a fear of judgment. There's a need to appease a God, small g. So you can go to the most remote tribes in a distant jungle and find individuals bowing down to images carved in trees because there's a need to somehow connect with something greater than themselves. They know there's a sense of right and wrong, and they want to atone for their sin. C.S. Lewis wrote The Case for Christianity, and in the midst of The Case for Christianity, he begins the argument by saying, you only have to understand the most elemental human relationship to understand this moral right and wrong, simply by looking at two people who are in relationship. A man and a woman come together, or two men come together, or two women come together. Eventually, some type of disagreement is going to ensue. There's going to be an argument of some type. When the argument develops between people, the thing that has to be determined immediately between those people is who's right and who's wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. No, you're wrong, and I'm right. That's what goes back and forth. Why do we do that? Because we know there is a right and there is a wrong. 
Even in the most godless society upon this planet, you let a little child be severely abused and all of society erupts, become incensed that someone would dare treat someone that way. Why? Because we're doing instinctively the things of the law. What did the law say? Care for the aged, care for the poor, care for the widow, take care of the sick. We're doing instinctively the things that God says. So Paul says those people, they're making a law unto themselves. They don't have an argument. Verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So he speaks of our own conscience, and every one of us has one. Our own conscience is a witness Now, someone could argue, I don't want to be accountable. I don't like this stuff that I'm hearing. I'm going to stop coming to church. I'm not even going to hang out with church people anymore. Paul says, go ahead. You go ahead and do that. Because your own thoughts will accuse you. Because of these individuals who are able to contemplate, we're all able to contemplate, their thoughts alternately are accusing or defending them. The way a conscience operates is this process of accusation or defense by our own thoughts. And we'd love to turn it off saying, I don't want to think about it. But you can't turn it off, right? There's no off switch. God didn't give us one for a reason. He uses this phrase, bearing witness. In the English language, it doesn't represent what the Greek language does. Bearing witness with, if you look at your Bible, if you have it open right now, it it says bearing witness in the English translation, but in the Greek, it says bearing witness with. Bearing witness with what? He doesn't include it here. So we have to ask the question, bearing witness against what, Paul? Against what set of standards? There's only one possible answer. The only possible answer is the law that's already been written on our heart. We've got a conscience. God says, I placed my law upon their hearts. They, the, the standard of measurement is our conscience against God's law, which we already know. Now, if I've lost you on some of that, let's go back to the 30,000-foot view. We're just, just about to land this plane. Here's the 30,000-foot view. God judges according to the light a person has received. His righteousness will not allow anyone to be responsible for things they never possessed, for information they never had. He's too righteous of a judge to do that. But Paul has already argued, everyone has some degree of knowledge. Everyone has some degree of information. Everyone possesses the knowledge of creation, the glory of God revealed in the sky, revealed here upon the earth. Therefore, everyone's going to be held accountable to the knowledge they have available to them. So logically, people would say, when? When does this happen? Verse 16 closes it. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Do you notice that Paul says this is my gospel? He owns it, right? This is, this is mine, meaning he knows it in reality because he knows what it's done for him. Calls himself the chief of sinners, and he knows it's his gospel because God saved him. Has it saved you this morning? Has God's gospel saved you? If that's true, then it's your gospel, church. It's yours. Own it. Own it wholeheartedly. It's not theory. It's not concept that people dreamed up. It's God's word. 
To share the gospel is to make it your own. Paul says, according to my gospel. I made it all the way, almost through this whole teaching without quoting any one of my favorite theologians, but I'm not going to let you out of here without doing that. Uh, Dr. Mounts, and he's, he's not a dead theologian. He's still alive today, but he's really old. Dr. Mounts said this about this passage. Paul's attachment to the gospel was profound. It remained at the very center of his ministry of reconciliation. In a day when so much preaching has sold its birthright for a pot of psychological porridge, the need for renewed focus on the essential gospel has never been greater. The gospel is to be your gospel. God has entrusted it to you. And then he quotes 2 Corinthians 5. Don't you really want to know what 2 Corinthians 5 says? I mean, it's so good. You already see it up on the screen, right? It says this, God is doing this. God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What's the word of reconciliation? The gospel. It's yours. He's committed it to you. It's my gospel, Paul says. So he reminds us of something. This gospel that we each share in, this good news, this gospel includes the reality of a judgment The connection of a judgment with the gospel cannot be overlooked. As believers in Christ, we're apt to think it just one cancels out the other. I I trade the judgment for the gospel. The gospel demands a judgment. Otherwise, there's nothing from which mankind needs to be saved, right? So verse 16 is amplifying something. It says there is a judgment And the secret thoughts of men are going to come out. Now, this causes people to get the EBGBs like, what? I don't want my secret thoughts revealed. The judgment will be conducted in a very specific fashion. Remember, there's no partiality with God. He doesn't keep anything hidden. God knows everything. Last week, we saw that God will make a judgment, including what we've done with opportunities, with deeds and actions, He he will let that play into his judgments based especially on the rewards for Christians. But the judgment also includes secrets. Now, the secrets remind us of something. The secrets remind us nothing can be hidden from him, not even the deepest, darkest things that we think no one else knows about. That's what makes this so serious. So just look at the verse again, Romans 2. God will judge the secrets of men. It's okay if you're uncomfortable for just a moment. Just hang with me. You can depend upon the fact that the judgment will be fair. There is absolutely nothing, not even the deepest, darkest secrets that God does not know. For a person who is not in relationship with God, that should scare you to death. That, that should cause you to freak out, like, what? Every single thing? That's incredibly frightening. But for a person who's justified through Jesus, it should give you astonishing peace because of verse 16. Complete the verse with me. Look on the screen. God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Praise God, church. Praise God it's through Jesus. Praise God that he is the intercessor. Praise God that our judge will be the very one who died for us. 
The very one who went to the cross is the same one who sits on the throne. He knows every single thing about you. And he loves you anyway. And he forgives you anyway. See, this is ending happy, right? This is good stuff. He remembers our sins no more. So judgment, yes. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can stand before the judge, but the judge can say you are not condemned because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Is that good news? That's good news. Okay. I hope this wasn't too brutally hard on you, but I just really, really needed to clear this up so make sure everybody's on the same page before we move forward into the rest of Romans 2. Okay, we're going to be done. You're done just a, a little bit early, but I want to pray for you before you leave. I've allowed enough time if you're not rushing out the door for a lunch meeting or something. If you want to engage in questions, I'd be happy to talk with you. Just come on up here and I'll be available. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would take this truth that we've studied and, and the things that we've examined and even where I have been um, muddy, where my manhood has fell short and bringing clarity, we trust that your Holy Spirit will bring clarity. We believe that that's true. Your, your Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide. So where I've fallen short, Father, I pray that you give clarity and that you be our comforter, but you also be our encourager. We know that that's your nature and character. So I pray for us as we take on this afternoon that we not get easily distracted, God. We get absorbed in football games and in parties and in events that we have to be at. Father, help us to really contemplate that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers only. I pray for this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.